And this is a question that I actually enjoy thinking about. I, there's something to me that's really fascinating about pondering what happens when you take your last breath and your spirit leaves your body. Hello friends and welcome or welcome back. We are continuing our series on eschatology, which is the part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and of humankind. So we've been having a lot of fun. We've looked at Revelation, we've looked at Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and now we're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to talk about a very practical question, and that is, what happens when you die? And this is a question that I actually enjoy thinking about. I There's something to me that's really fascinating about pondering what happens when you take your last breath and your spirit leaves your body. I mean, it's just, uh, it's wild that that's an experience that every single human being has had or is going to have. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So the experience of death is something that we've inherited from Adam, and it's a result of sin, but it is a universal experience for all of humankind. And it's really, really interesting that we're all going to have this experience, experience, except for those who are alive when the Lord returns and their bodies are transformed in the twinkling of an eye. But for anyone who dies before the Lord comes back, we are going to have this experience. And I know for some people, that's a scary thought, you know, that, uh, man, I'd rather just not think about that. But honestly, if you look at the Bible, I think you'll be really encouraged and I think you'll be you, you'll find that there's so much hope, and the scripture gives us such a clear picture of what happens to us when we die, that um, there's great reason to be hopeful and to be joyful and not to be fearful. You know, if you get your theology from uh, Hollywood or from like a movie, like It's a Wonderful Life, where Clarence is a guy who died many centuries ago, and he's an angel now trying to earn his wings. Well, of course, that's total nonsense. Humans don't turn into angels, and they don't uh, stick around doing good deeds trying to earn their way into heaven. But if you look at what the Bible says about death, and if you look at the wisdom that the Scripture offers us, you realize, wow, Jesus is awesome, and he has taken the sting out of death. It doesn't have to be painful, and it doesn't have to be fearful. Uh, Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So dying apart from the Lord is certainly a fearful thing, and I understand why a lot of people would be scared of dying. It's it's fearful. It's it's a scary thing if, if you have to face death apart from knowing God and apart from knowing Jesus. But praise the Lord, we're not apart from God. And praise the Lord, uh, you have the chance to know Jesus. You have the chance to give your life to him. And that takes all the fear out of death, really takes the sting, the pain out of death. And you know, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, verse 11, it says that God has put eternity into each one of our hearts, that we naturally have a desire to live forever because God didn't create us for death. Death was a, a result of sin. So 
There's this desire in us that wants to live, that wants to exist. The idea of ceasing to exist is terrifying because that's not what we were created for. And C.S. Lewis pointed out that when we have these desires that can't be satisfied in this life, it should cause us to, to scratch our head and consider that maybe we weren't made just for this life. So let's talk for a minute about what death is and how the Bible describes death. Look with me uh, in James chapter 2 and verse 26. It says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So death is simply the spirit of a person leaving their body. And we can confirm this in the life of Jesus. Look with me at Luke chapter 8. Uh, verse 52, it says, And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. So when Jesus raised somebody from the dead, he called their spirit back into their body. So it says that he called, so he's calling to this little girl, and then it says her spirit returned. And he did the same thing when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He called out, Lazarus, come forth. So he's when Jesus is raising people from the dead, he's calling their spirit back into their body. And um, even Jesus's own death is testified that He's hanging on the cross, and he gives up his spirit. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus gives up his spirit, and then he dies. And so death is simply the process of our spirit leaving our body. Look at how Peter described his own departure from this world that he knew was, was imminent. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter's writing a letter because he says, look, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And so we've talked about on this podcast before that we are a body, a soul, and a spirit. And so death is when we put off the body. Death is simply that our spirit gets free from this earth suit. You know, people have described our physical body as our earth suit, like you need a space suit to walk around in space. Well, on the earth, God has given us these bodies, and they're how we interact with the earth around us. But these bodies is not all that there is to us, because we also have a soul, and we also have a spirit. And um, when we die, our spirit simply leaves our body. It doesn't. We don't cease to exist. We just exist outside of our body. This is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. So that's just describing Jesus' life on earth was that he was in a physical fleshly body. So I'm just going to keep moving pretty quickly because we're going to look at a lot of verses. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 8. It says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul said to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And so I'll explain more as we go along, but the idea that Christians fall asleep um, doesn't mean that we are not conscious. The, the, what falls asleep is our body. Our body returns to the dust 
And that's why Jesus described the little girl that she was sleeping. Basically, her body didn't have her spirit in it, but her spirit was still animated. And Paul said to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So the moment that we leave our bodies, we get to go be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so death is nothing to be fearful of. It's going to be awesome. Our spirit is going to be liberated, and we're going to be with the Lord. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul is saying, look, I would much rather leave this body behind and go be with the Lord. But God still has things for me to do here on the earth. And likewise, for each believer living today, we're in the same situation. You know, yes, of course, it would be wonderful to go and be with the Lord and and escape this body of sin, escape this body of corruption, where we still have to resist the devil and we still have to resist our flesh. It would be much better to be away from the presence of sin and be with the Lord. But God has put us on the earth for a purpose. And it's as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, God's purpose is not to simply vacuum his people off of the planet. God's purpose is for us to fill the planet with a knowledge of his glory, of his goodness, and of his magnificence. So he says he needs to stay on the earth because he has fruitful labor. God has given us fruitful labor to do in the days of our flesh. He's put us on the earth for a purpose. We're not just saved and stuck. We're waiting for, for something greater. That's true. But we're here, and we're, we should be engaged in fruitful labor. We should be about manifesting the kingdom of God and helping other people to to come to know Christ and helping the whole earth come to a knowledge of the glory and the goodness of God. Let's go on. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, it talks about the, the martyrs that have already died, and it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so, This is just another indication that when we leave our bodies, we're immediately with the Lord. We don't go into some kind of holding tank somewhere, though that was the case in the Old Testament, and I'll show that in a little while. But Christ set the captives free, um, and he he led captives into heaven, and that's what those verses are talking about, but we'll get there in a minute. Let's go on to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So when we die, we go to be with the Lord. But the Lord is going to come back. And this is another one of those verses that talks about the coming of the Lord. We talked about in our last episode, what's left. If the main storyline of Revelation is actually about the overcoming of God's enemies in the first century, well, does that mean there's not a physical return of Jesus? And the answer to that is no, because there are other places in the scripture that teach very clearly that Jesus will return visibly, like we talked about in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, where the disciples see Jesus ascend into the heavens 
literally rise up into heaven, and the angels say he's going to come back just the same way. So there's plenty of scripture that teaches a physical, visible return of Jesus. And so we can understand Revelation in the preterist framework and yet still believe in a physical, visible return of Jesus. And that's what that verse is talking about. So in that verse, it talks about God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so what is this sleep talking about? Well, that's what I just said. This The sleep is the physical body. And check out this verse in Daniel. This is an Old Testament verse, which I think is so amazing. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, this is an Old Testament book. Daniel 12, verse 2, writing about the resurrection of the dead. So amazing that God, by his Holy Spirit, was revealing this to Daniel hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. Look at Psalm chapter 17, verse 15. It says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And you know, for years I read that verse and just thought, okay, one of these days, I'm going to have enough quiet times and I'm going to be, you know, disciplined enough and I'm going to wake up and I'll just be like Jesus. I'll just be like Jesus. But that's not what that's talking about. He's talking about when I awake from sleeping in the dust, I will be satisfied with your likeness. And like 1 Corinthians 15:52 says, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. We will be transformed. We will be like Jesus. We will have a glorified body. In fact, let's go over to those verses now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. And this is a great chapter. It just lays it out for us, the resurrection of the dead, um, the resurrection of the body. So good. We're going to start in 15 verse 21. For as by a man came death, that's talking about Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, talking about Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus, in verse 20, he says, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus is the first person who gets a resurrected, glorified body. And then all of those who have fallen asleep, whose spirits are now present with the Lord, when Jesus comes back, they will also get a glorified, resurrected body. Let's skip down to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown is perishable. That's talking about our physical flesh, our, our, our bodies that are created from the dust of the earth. So he says, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor because our, our bodies are corrupted by sin. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, talking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust so also are those who are of the dust, talking about us. So Adam was a man of dust, we're also people of the dust. As is the man of heaven, talking about Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, so this is all really good news, really exciting news. This is the hope of the gospel, that we will be resurrected, that we'll get these transformed bodies that won't be corrupted by sin. All right, I'm going to go on keep reading here from uh, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means not everyone is going to experience this physical death. Remember, sleep is when our body is without our spirit on the earth, like Jairus' daughter, like Lazarus. When our spirit leaves our body, our body is without the spirit, and it appears to be asleep. That's what we would call physical death. Remember in the story where Jesus raised uh, Jairus' daughter, everyone laughed because they knew she was dead. So from their perspective, that is that was death. Okay, he says, we shall not all sleep. So that means not everyone's going to die. I'm going to keep reading now. But we shall all be changed. So everyone is going to get a new body, even those people who are still alive when Christ comes. I'm going on verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so that is just a beautiful passage describing for us in great detail the resurrection of the body, that we are going to get a new body, that we are going to reign forever with Jesus, that this body that is corrupt, that is mortal, that is fleshly, is going to be changed into one that's incorruptible, to one that's immortal, to one that's glorious like the body that Jesus has. And this is why he said before in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because people, until Jesus comes back, even Christians are going to die. 
But when Jesus comes back, we will completely overcome death because we'll get new bodies that will never die again, which is awesome. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So, that is awesome. We are going to get a transformed body. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 11. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So the Bible says if we endure, if we stay steadfast in our faith, that we will reign with Jesus. Look with me at Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. It says, He made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So it's the intention of Jesus to take all of his brothers, that's us. Remember how I've said before that we are all sons, and we're also all the bride of Christ. So in Christ, there's no male or female, so don't get caught up on being a son if you happen to be a woman. But we are all sons of God, and we are all heirs, And so we are destined to reign with him. Look at Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus wants us to share in his reign. I mean, it would have been enough if Jesus had just come to save us. And then after he saved us, he made us his slaves for all eternity and we just served him. That would have been a good deal, and he's so wonderful, I would have been happy to do it. But not only does he come and save us and rescue us and make us his children, he shares his authority with us, and he wants us to reign and to rule with him for all of eternity. So that is what believers in Jesus Christ have to look forward to. But now I want to shift gears for a little bit and talk about what happens to those who don't know Jesus, those who have rejected Jesus as their Lord. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the unrighteous, and I don't mean on a scale of 1 to 10, like did you do good deeds or bad deeds. I'm talking about the righteousness that comes by faith by believing in Jesus. The Bible says that righteousness is a gift, and you receive it by believing and trusting what God has said and accepting Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. So that's what makes you righteous. Your faith in Christ makes you righteous. And for those people who have rejected that gift, they are the unrighteous. And the Bible says when the unrighteous die, they go into Hades or into hell. And they are held there until the final judgment of all mankind when they are then put into the lake of fire. So let's look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, 
Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so those who have trusted Christ are those who have their names written in the book of life. Those who have not trusted Christ as their Savior, those who thought that they were a good enough person uh, on their own, who are trusting in their own good deeds, those who rejected Jesus outright, said, I don't even believe that. That's real. I don't believe that exists. I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. Those people's names are blotted out of the book of life. And I think it's important to recognize here that this is not God's will for people to perish. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, starting at the end of verse 3. It says, God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So God is desiring for all people to be saved. God has given his son. He gave himself as a ransom for all men. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should be saved. That's 2 Peter 3.9. Let's read that together. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so God's will is for everyone to be saved. God is not wanting to put people into the lake of fire. In fact, Jesus even described it this way in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. He says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So the eternal fire, the lake of fire, was never even prepared for mankind. It was never God's intent to have mankind go into the lake of fire. And so it's not that God is sending people to hell. It's that people are rejecting the kindness and the goodness and the mercy of God, and they choose to go to hell. In fact, there's an interesting book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce, where uh, people from hell basically take a field trip to heaven And after looking around heaven a while, they decide that that's not where they want to be. That's not for them. They they reject that, and they still choose to remain in hell. And that's an interesting idea that I think we may actually see play out, that people's hearts become so hardened toward God that even when God reveals himself to them, they still curse God. They still hate God. They still reject God. And so it's not God rejecting humanity or God rejecting sinners. It's sinners rejecting the provision that God has made for them in his son, Jesus Christ. And if God is the source of life, when you reject the source of life, the only thing that is left is death. And that death goes on for all of eternity when our spirit leaves our body. In fact, it's very interesting that um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7 says this, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And so when a non-believer dies, what happens to them is so incredibly painful and so incredibly devastating that it is the eternal separation from life, that they are eternally separated from the life of God. So the Ecclesiastes described that the spirit returns to God. And so it's the division 
of their soul and their spirit, that they actually they lose the, the image of God that was given to them, that they were created in God's image, that they had a spirit. It wasn't a born-again spirit, but it was a spirit that was in need of salvation. And at death, even that spirit that they had, that was what Proverbs calls, Proverbs says, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. And it's that spirit in us that reaches out to God. That's why Romans talks about that inside of us, we all have an innate knowledge of God, that every single person on the planet, regardless of what they say, knows that God is real and knows about the invisible attributes of God that can be seen in the visible creation. And people can deaden that, and people can, you know, sear their conscience, and people can turn that off over time by, you know, rejecting all of the the pricks that God gives in our conscience. That's why Paul said that when he's recounting his experience on the road to Damascus, the Lord says to him, is it easy for you to kick against the goads? In other words, listen, I've been convicting your heart. I've been prodding you. You know in your heart that I am Lord. And that should give us confidence when we share the gospel with anyone. The Holy Spirit is testifying and he's convicting their heart. But people can can ignore it and people can turn that off. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so this division of soul and spirit is what happens to a lost person when they die, that their soul is cast into hell. And uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. There Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So when a lost person dies, when someone who rejects Jesus dies, their soul is separated from their spirit. And again, this is one of those ideas that we could have never come to on our own. This is one of the remarkable things in the scripture that comes through the divine revelation of the the scripture, that mankind has both a soul and a spirit, and that the word of God can divide between those two things. And so Ecclesiastes says that the dust returns to the dust, the spirit returns to God who gave it, and the soul, if it has rejected the gift of God's grace, is separated from life for eternity. It's separated from God for all of eternity because they have rejected God's sacrifice for sin. And that's what Hebrews 10, 26 is talking about, that if we we reject the sacrifice that God has made for our sins, if we go on sinning deliberately, and the sin it's talking about there isn't you know, lying, cheating, and stealing, though of course we shouldn't do those things, but in the context of Hebrews, he's talking about rejecting the testimony of Jesus as God's Son. If we go on rejecting the testimony of Jesus as God's Son, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? And so the consequences of rejecting Jesus are severe and they are eternal. And this is, I know this is heavy and it's, it's weighty, 
And the theme of this podcast is enjoying the inexpressible gift of God. And that's what I want my life to be about, is enjoying the richness of God's grace. But just as much as there is a richness of God's grace to be enjoyed in Jesus Christ, likewise, there is an eternal wrath to be faced outside of Jesus Christ. And there is nowhere in the universe where someone can flee to be safe from the wrath of God outside of Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ where we are safe from God's wrath. And praise God for his provision. Praise God for the hope that he offers us. But for those who are looking for comfort outside of Christ, there is none to be had. And so believers have an eternal hope And that's why Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So people apart from Christ have no hope. Death is fearful. Death is painful. But we are not like those without hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And even so, through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, that we will also share in the resurrection of the dead, we will be resurrected to life, and that when we depart from this body, when our spirit departs, we will not experience the separation of soul and spirit that the unbeliever experiences where their soul goes in to be tormented until the resurrection, and then they will go into the lake of fire for all of eternity. We believe that our soul and our spirit will go to be with the Lord forever. And that is a blessed hope. Praise God. Listen to this from Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so that is the blessed hope that we have, that Jesus is going to come back. We are going to reign with him forever, working the righteousness of God for all eternity. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God has raised us up with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We have such a great, wonderful hope to look forward to, an eternity spent with the kindest king of the universe, with the most wonderful, most generous, most glorious, magnificent, loving person in all of the universe, God the Father, his Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And so we need not be afraid of death. We need not fear death. We need not fear the sting of death because Jesus has overcome it. Real quick, if you've listened this far, thanks so much. And I just want to spend a few more minutes Uh, sharing something that I personally find fascinating, that to me just testifies to the wholeness of the Scripture and of the Bible. But what I've been describing is what happens to someone when they die in Christ, in the New Covenant. But it was not like this in the Old Covenant. And in fact, you see that when you look in the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, people were not dying and going to heaven. And so, In the Old Testament, there was a concept of Sheol, or the house of the dead. Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary defines Sheol as this. 
First, the word means the state of death. We see this in Psalm 6, 5, Psalm 18, 5, Job 21, 13, 1 Samuel 2, 6, uh, Proverbs 15, 11. Second, Sheol is used of a place of conscious existence after death. In the first biblical appearance of the word, Jacob said that he would go down to the grave unto my son in mourning, Genesis 37, 35. All men go to Sheol, a place and state of consciousness after death, Psalm 16, 10. The wicked receive punishment there, according to Numbers 16.30, Deuteronomy 32.22, and Psalm 9.17, and are put to shame and silenced in Sheol, Psalm 31.17. So Sheol is an undesirable place for the wicked, but Sheol for the righteous was a place of reward. It was a place of rest. And so the Old Testament teaches the concept of kind of a two-chambered place of the dead, house of the dead. For the wicked, it was a place of torment. For the righteous, it was a place of refuge. And Jesus even talks about this in his parable in Luke 16, the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And that says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so in this parable, Jesus lays out this place of Sheol as a two-chambered place for the dead. And we can also see this idea in the story of Saul and the witch at Endor, which I won't get into right now. But basically in 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul goes to this witch to conjure up um, Samuel. And it says that Samuel came up out of the earth. And so before Jesus had made provision for the sin of mankind, the righteous were going to Abraham's bosom. The righteous were going to this place called Sheol. And Jesus, after he died on the cross and paid the penalty for sins, the Bible says that he descended into the depths of the earth and he led captives out of Sheol. So Jesus went and led the righteous out of Sheol. 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about this. It says, In verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So Jesus goes and proclaims to the spirits in prison. That's talking about the people in Sheol. So he's even proclaiming to the people of Noah's day, 
Ephesians chapter 4 talks about this beginning in verse 8. It says, Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? So Jesus descended into the lower regions not to suffer for sin. He suffered for sin on the cross. At the cross, God's wrath was completely poured out. So Jesus didn't go into Sheol to be tormented or to be, you know, poked at by demons, nothing like that. Jesus went into Sheol to lead the righteous out. And so now this is even more mind-blowing. In Matthew chapter 27, when it's describing what happened after Jesus died, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That's what we talked about earlier. Verse 51 now. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So, <laughs> I mean, that's that's pretty wild stuff. Jesus dies on the cross, goes into Sheol, leads out the captives, and on the way out of Sheol, some of these guys look at their bodies in Jerusalem and go, hey, that body still looks like it could work, and they're actually raised to life. So some of the captives that Jesus freed from Sheol actually come back to life according to the account of Scripture. The bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So these people come out, and they're like, man, I encountered the Messiah, Jesus, in the grave, and he led us out of Sheol, and then he led captives up to heaven. And as we know, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father now, and the spirits of the righteous are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. And so Hebrews 12, 22, contrasting the Old Covenant with the New, says that we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And so all of the righteous people made perfect by the sacrifice of Jesus are now with Jesus in heaven. He emptied out the part of Sheol that was set aside for the rest and for the comfort of the righteous. And that is why David said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that he was delivered by the power of Jesus out of the grave. And that prophecy found fulfillment in Christ, like Peter talked about in Acts chapter 2, that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, because God raised up Jesus, but even David himself, his soul was not abandoned to Sheol because Jesus emptied it out. And to me, that is just another amazing evidence of the inspired nature of the Bible. These are concepts that are laid out by different authors over millennia, and yet the Bible fits everything together so well. It's just astonishing to me. So I hope this has been a blessing to you. I hope that you take heart. If you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, I hope that you will accept the gift of God's grace and the gift of righteousness and surrender your life to Jesus and come into the blessed hope of knowing Jesus, that when we die, we have nothing to fear that when we die, we're going to be with the Lord. And when he comes back, we're going to get a new body and we're going to reign with him forever. 
So God bless you. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.